Well, our deacons again are going to head up the aisle at this time and they'll collect any prayer slips that you may have, um, prayer slips, visitor slips, and uh, we will, uh, as is our custom, uh, spend time uh, praying and lifting those things, those needs up to the Lord uh, this week. Um, wanted to mention our uh, pastor, Brother Jim, uh, and his family are uh, anticipating the funeral of his mother, Sharon, today, and I know he would want me to express his uh, gratitude for your prayers and uh, many uh, outpourings of support. Uh, our flowers today on the altar uh, table here uh, were a gift from Sharon to this church uh, for uh, the Advent, intended as the Advent gift um, before her passing. And so today we remember uh, her, uh, a great woman of faith, and um, we're so thankful for her testimony and um, praying that uh, the peace that comes with that and the joy that comes with that would be for all the laws today um, as they celebrate her life. Um, I want to read as we get started today, we're going to continue on with our look uh, at John 3.16 and some parallel uh, verses as well, as well. And I want to read our passage this morning uh, from 1 John 4. Uh, 1 John 4 is where we'll spend the bulk of our time uh, this morning. We'll, we'll mention John 3.16 in uh, in passing, I think you're probably familiar enough with John 3 <laughs> that uh, we can spend our time in 1 John 4 here, but let's read it to familiarize ourselves with the text, beginning in verse 7. 1 John 4, 7 uh, through 16. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love and whoever abides in love, whoever, in, whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing as we search the scriptures this morning and try to understand the love that you have expressed in the person and the work of your son, Jesus Christ. May we be people who reflect your love, and may, in so doing, we abide with you, and may we know that in our abiding, we are glorifying you and showing that love, not only to one another, but to a world that needs you so badly. Lord, we thank you for this. We pray the Holy Spirit would come now to teach us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Helen was said to be one of the most beautiful women in the ancient world. She was married to King Menelaus, but Aphrodite promised her to a young man named Paris. After they fled to Troy, Menelaus retook her by force, 
sending an entire army and a huge armada to destroy Troy. Homer and Virgil tell us this is love. Cleopatra was the last pharaoh of Egypt. Her love affair or marriage with Mark Antony incited suspicion and anger in Rome and propelled the known world into conflict. Refusing to be captured by their enemies, they took their own lives together. This, Shakespeare says, is love. A young woman in France named Marie was uh, caught the eye of Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte. And though he liked her very much, he didn't care for her name, so he asked her to change it. I mean, what would you do? And so the emperor says, please change your name for me. And when he proposed marriage, she refused him, but then accepted his offer after she heard that he was going to propose to someone else. Historians tell us this is love. On an ill-fated Atlantic crossing, a young woman named Rose laments her unhappy engagement to a wealthy man named Cal. Ready to end her life by jumping overboard, she's rescued and subsequently develops feelings for a young man named Jack. Rose abandons her mother, her promises, and even her morality in pursuit of happiness with Jack. This, James Cameron, or Hollywood, would tell us, is love. The world is filled with these contradicting and distorted examples of love. And there's great uncertainty as to whether love is an emotion, maybe an action or a decision, a commitment, or some combination of all these things, something else entirely, or maybe something that doesn't exist at all. And language compounds the confusion. A man can use the same word, at least in English, to describe the deepest affections of his heart and his preference between football teams. Something's wrong with that, isn't it? Scripture, thankfully, is susceptible to none of that confusion and distortion and limitation in its definition of love. The Apostle John, in particular, describes the length God went to in order to define and display his love for us. In John 3.16, with which we're also very familiar, um, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And if we could hang our thoughts upon a main verse here in 1 John 4, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John says, this is love. So, three thoughts about love today from, from this text uh, from the Apostle John. First, love is what God is. We are going to speak about God's nature. Love is what God is. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Love is what God is. This is not to say that love is the only thing he is, and we'll talk more about that uh, in a moment, but I I do want to point out that John gives um, three very helpful, three great teachings about God's nature in his writing, both in his gospel and in his uh, epistles. John loves to paint theological pictures um, with dichotomies. And a dichotomy is just simply uh, a contrast between two things that are represented as opposites. So you have one thing on one hand and the opposite on the other. So uh, John paints with things like light or dark, truth or falsehood, flesh or spirit, faith or unbelief, these uh, opposites on the ends of uh, a spectrum. And so John tells us that God is spirit, speaking of his essence. 
What is God made of? Well, he isn't material. He isn't physical. He isn't, he isn't flesh um, until the person of Christ uh, came at Advent. He isn't even created. He's uncreated. And so John 4, 24 tells us God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So first, God is spirit. Second, God is light. This, I believe, speaks to his holiness. He isn't good and bad like some uh, sort of cosmic yin and yang. He's, he isn't mostly good with some portion of bad because nobody's perfect. In fact, John tells us just the opposite is true of God in 1 John 1. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And then thirdly, John tells us that God is love. That's right. God is love. And this is speaking of his character. Like holiness, love is one of the chief moral attributes of God. So when we think about God and we think about what he is like, we think of his attributes, some of them are his alone. No one can be like him. Those are incommunicable attributes. But some, we get to participate in reflecting who and what God is and what he is like. Those are communicable attributes. Some of them are moral in their nature. And so his moral attributes, um, like goodness, mercy, grace, patience, just to name uh, a few. And as you know, the New Testament uses several words uh, that are translated to English as love, this other moral attribute of God. There's philea, which is brotherly or filial love, and there's agapao, which is commonly referred to as God's love. Well, what, what does that really mean? How would we define that? Well, Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology defines God's love in a very helpful way, I think. God's love means that God externally gives of himself to others. Now, of all the ways that we could define love, and of all the scriptures that we could think about that talk about love, that one's not a wow right off the <laughs> right off the first read. It may not wow you, but the longer you think about this idea, the bigger and greater and more wonderful it really is. This is more than a choice, it's more than an action, it's it's a whole way of being. It is a way of being. It is a disposition to give self away without reservation, at a cost, and without requiring anything in return. So it's, it's not so much that God is loving, like it's something that he has or that he can do. It's because God is this that love is. It is a way that we imitate him. So we know that God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Christ the Son have shared in this loving, self-giving relationship with one another from all eternity past. And that is an incredible uh, thought. Today we're going to focus on the way that uh, God's, uh, God's giving of himself was manifested to us in the person of Jesus. So any true representation of love that's ever been offered, anything that's actually really truly love anywhere in all history is just a reflection of the one who didn't just exemplify love, he defines it, he upholds it. Love only exists because he does. God is love. But maybe we should be careful to say what that doesn't mean. And there's a couple of those that I think are worth mentioning. It does not mean that love is God. The converse is not true. God is love does not mean that love is God. Although many in our day have wagered everything on that standard. Though they might not state it that way. The world's fallen understanding of love is often played as a trump card. 
Um, among all the clashing values of society, this one trumps all. Love trumps all. And I would say that particularly is the case when other ideas about ethics or morality come into play. You don't think he's the right one for me? Too bad. I love him. You think this activity that I'm choosing to participate in is harmful to me or to others? Well, I love it. You have concerns about my so-called lifestyle choices or other moral decisions about my life? It's just love. I can love whoever and whatever I want. And by the way, you only love me if you accept my ideas about all of those things. Stubbornly clinging to your own values means that I can say you don't love me or even that you hate me. And of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Dialoguing about ethics, morality, and the choices that, um, that affect our lives that come out of those, uh, those standards, or, uh, dialoguing about those things is one of the most loving things we can do for one another, given the right motivation and the right tenor. And so to say that this isn't love uh, is, um, is silly, and to use love as a trump card to throw out any other values is not what is meant by God is love. Saying that God is love does not mean that love is God. It also doesn't mean that God is only love. God is love, but that doesn't mean he's only love. As we've said before, love is among the moral attributes of God, but it's not, it's not his only moral attribute. It's a huge and unfortunately very popular misunderstanding to conclude that because God is love, there will be no reckoning for sin. Because God is love, there'll be no judgment, no absolute differentiating between what is right and wrong, what is good and what is bad. And so we can come and erroneously rip John 3.16 and other verses like it right from the context of the pages of Scripture and create a God of our own imagination. Um, and we will say that this God might be, he's good, uh, but he'll not force his good on others at the expense of love. We might say that he's holy, but he's not going to force that holiness or punish sin or create a judgment uh, at the expense of love. Love is going to carry the day. Love is going to oversee all the other attributes. It's much easier to stomach this God for whom we've cherry-picked scriptures to support. His love and only love, um, and he acts in, in benevolence to all, no matter what. The problem with that is that it doesn't stand up to the rest of Scripture. As we saw last week, John 3.16 is a wonderful verse. And these ideas about God's love are important and true, but they're not the only ideas. They're not the only Scriptures that we need. We need the full counsel of God's Word to explain His nature to us. So the question then is, if, if that's not what God is love means, what does John mean? What does John really mean by stating God is love in this particular case. Well, it's, it's, it's coming with clarity over the coming ver verses, and as we saw with Grudem's definition, it's a giving of self. It's a self-sacrificing disposition. But it's in perfect harmony with all of his other attributes. So God's love can be offered fully, powerfully, and with an intensity that's really impossible for us to fully comprehend without compromising at all on his holiness and his goodness and his righteousness and his justice and even his jealousy and his wrath, which are also moral values that are valid and good and right. And so properly understood, these things all together actually really inform us more about what God's love really is. And we'll see that more in the time ahead. 
John says God is love, and in doing that, he gives us command. That's really how he begins, by giving us this command, let us love one another. But in his explanation in these opening verses that God is love, and those who love are the ones who know God, this let us love one another command is just a command to imitate God. It is a command to demonstrate a self-sacrificing disposition towards one another. It's a giving of self uh, to others that doesn't contradict all the things, the other things Scripture tells us to do, like standing for truth and pursuing holiness, all of those things. And so in verse 7, John tells us that it's God's self-giving nature that is the source of all the other reflections of that, and it's one of the great proofs that we truly know Him, that we give of self in the same way that He does. So God is love. God is Love is something that God is. Love is what God did, we see in verses 9 through 11. And let me read that uh, part for us again, that we can keep this familiar. In verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for sins. And if he, if he so loved us, we ought also love one another. And so we come to this moment where his love is made manifest, Jesus Christ, the, the Son. And if you're wondering, why would you pick John 3.16 as your Advent theme? This is the answer. This, here it is. It's Jesus being God's love manifested. It is the tangible expression of this perfect self-sacrificing love of God. This, says John, is love, and he begins with a very important distinction. This is love, not that we loved God. Now, that's, that's a little bit odd, I think. Why would you begin by saying, not that we loved God? Why would he start that way? Well, I think it's because man's understanding of love has always been conflicted. It's always been a bit off and affected by our sin and our limited perspective And so lest we inflate our own role in this relationship between us and God, lest we allow our broken understanding of love to misinform us about our standing with God, John begins here. He reminds us, apart from God, we're at enmity with Him. We're not right with Him. We're we're not even neutral with Him. We are at enmity with Him. And that's not obscure. That's Romans 8 and Ephesians 2 and James 4, we're not in right standing with God. Spurgeon said it this way, in us there was no love, there was a hatred of God and of his goodness. The enmity was not on God's side toward us, but on our side towards him. We didn't want anything to do with what God calls good. We didn't want anything to do with him supervising us. So we didn't love him. We were his enemies. And so into that understanding of the relationship, into that understanding of the situation, we have the rest of verse 10. So not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son. And I hear the echo of Paul in Romans 5. God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. John Piper said it this way, John is emphasizing that the nature and the origin of love does not lie in our response to God. That's that's not where love starts. It's not about us. It's not about, we're just the reflection. And so it's not 
It doesn't lie in our response to God. That's not where love starts. That's not mainly what love is. Love is and love starts with God. And if anything we feel or do can be called love, it will be because we're connected with God by the new birth. And so into this broken relationship, not because of anything that we had done or any way that we could repay him, God sent his son as propitiation for our sin. Now, propitiation is one of those words that you don't hear. It's not going to be used in a commercial this afternoon on TV, right? Propitiation is not one of those common words that we hear. It's an offering that's meant to satisfy an offense. So depending on your translation, you may have propitiation here, or you may have atoning sacrifice, or even expiation. Some translators favor atoning sacrifice because modern readers simply won't know what propitiation is. The problem with that is that the Greek word here, helasmas, really implies the turning away of divine wrath. And I think people get uneasy about that. We conjure up these images of pagan sacrifices meant to appease the anger of their deities, and that seems so foreign to us. But it's a, it's a grave misunderstanding to think that atonement for sin could be made with a holy God without a satisfaction for his wrath. We, that's, that's not possible. If God is holy and just, he can't be neutral towards that which is sinful. There must be wrath or he wouldn't be holy. He wouldn't be just. So his intolerance for sin is perfect. So propitiation points us to two important, if uncomfortable, truths. God's unfathomable holiness God's unfathomable holiness and our incredible sinfulness. This underestimation right here is really at the heart of our cavalier attitude towards sin. It's really at um, the heart of why we think our sin doesn't matter so much. It's why we rest on the promise of God's forgiveness without pursuing holiness. It's why the world imagines that no sin could ever deserve, could ever deserve eternal punishment, much less any sin, much less every sin. You mean every single sin, even the smallest imaginable infraction, deserves eternal punishment? Does that seem right to you? Well, the part that we get wrong, we don't accept that because we underestimate not only the grotesqueness of the sin, but also the infinite magnitude of God's holiness. We, we get both ends of the spectrum wrong. We think, well, it's just a small sin. Surely it can't demand eternal punishment. And the problem is we've, we've measured it at the wrong scale. We've not seen the magnitude of God's holiness and the, and the, terrible, um, the terrible, terrible nature of our sin. There must be then a perfect sacrifice which can make atonement by appeasing that wrath. So no, we're not talking about some meager offering that we can bring, some work that we can do, that again is a miscalculation of God's holiness and our sinfulness. It's, the scale is too big. There's nothing that we could do. Uh, it would be impossible to assuage uh, his righteous anger toward our sin. So what's required here is the perfect sacrifice made by God himself to assuage his own wrath toward his enemies. Now just think about that again in the context of how we've defined love. That he would give of himself at a cost 
to those who could never repay. This is love. This is what he has done. The appeasement then that is offered on our behalf is a gift. Paul says this same exact thing in Romans 3. You're familiar with it, but listen to the words that pop out of Romans 3 that we've seen here in this, um, in this section of 1 John. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There is a wrath that must be appeased. And love is giving Christ as the propitiation, the satisfaction against that wrath that we might come to him. Love is what God did in a perfect giving of self as unmerited favor toward those who did not love him in return and who could never repay him. He assuaged his own wrath towards sin by sending Jesus. So this year, I would offer this as a first challenge today. Every time you see a nativity, every time you see a nativity this year, you're looking at one now, let this thought permeate your heart and your mind. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he assuaged his own righteous anger towards sin that we might come to him. Be filled with wonder at the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. Thirdly, love is what God is doing. Love is what God is doing. And I want to read, I'm going to begin again in verse 11, though we've read it already, uh, through 16. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And as we have seen and testify uh, that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that love, the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. John returns again to this truth that we must be imitators of God in loving one another. It's how we began with the command instruction in verse 7, and he reiterates it here. God is the source. He's the prime creator and giver of love, and we are commissioned to be an expression or a reflection of him in the world. This is our witness. This is our testimony. In verse 12, John gives us this rationale. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. What is the implication of that statement? That the world will now see God through the demonstration of his love by those who are abiding with him and as he abides with them. So when we love God, uh, when we love as God loves, this giving of self, this self-sacrificing love, God abides in us and we in him. What does abide mean? King James uses the word dwell. New American Standard says remains. Um, abide just means to stay continually, to not leave. 
And the world is going to see God because he's going to be with us continually when we love as he loves. At the end of verse 12, John says God's love is perfected in us. It's perfected in us. And I think it's important for us to understand what that means as we seek to carry out this command to love one another. Warren Wearsby, a Bible commentator, points out God's love is proclaimed in the word and it's proven at the cross. But here we have something deeper. God's love is perfected in the believer. Fantastic as it may seem, God's love is not made perfect in angels, but in sinners saved by his grace. We Christians are now tabernacles and temples in which God dwells. He reveals his love through us. Perfected in this uh, particular case doesn't mean that God's love was somehow lacking before we experienced it and and before we reflected it. Perfection here um, comes from the Greek word uh, teleao, and it's a verb that, that has to do with the end Um, the completion or the end. And so uh, it implies fullness, completeness. And what John is saying here is that God's love is accomplishing the purpose for which it is intended when we glorify God by acting his love out toward one another. I just want to say that one more time. The purpose for which God's love was intended is his glory. People will see, no one has ever seen God. They're going to. They're going to see him in us when we love self-sacrificingly towards one another. He is going to be glorified in such a way that the world will see him and see his glory. So uh, when we bring glory to him, um, we, we point the world to him. We show them what his love is like. We show them what his nature really is like. 1 John fifteen twelve. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You see the self-sacrifice. You see the, the giving of self. Love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. In humility, count yourselves, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And of course, we could go on and on. There's plenty of uh, verses to, uh, to sit and consider deeply about the love of God and how we're to reflect it. But I, I would just point us in this direction that we talked a lot about how wonderful and, and, and perfect God's love is. And we've, we've mentioned how often we miss that mark, that our misunderstanding uh, about love or our selfishness, our sin, uh, affects the way that we love uh, one another. And it creeps into the things that we do and say and think and the attitudes that we hold in our heart, all while we're trying to love as he loves. So how will we know when we're getting it right? And when we're getting it wrong, how will we know if we are really remaining in him and he in us? Well, that's the role of the Holy Spirit. And John includes that in verse 13. By this, we know that we remain in him and he in us because he has given to us of his spirit. So this is about assurance. And it has to be said, there's absolutely no hope of reflecting the selfless kind of sacrificial love 
uh, which is found in God apart from being born again and being led by the Spirit. No one has even the vaguest hope of doing this apart from new life in Christ. Believers are the ones who must carry out this command. That's not to say that Christians display this love uh, perfectly. In fact, our shortcomings in, in this are one of the most recognizable and often cited objections to, uh, to Christianity by skeptics and cynics. We don't treat our opponents with love. We don't even, we don't even treat our brothers and sisters in Christ with love frequently. And so we repent, we learn, we grow, we seek God, and we desire all the more to display more of his love to more people more often. And that is the evidence. If we look and we, we see in, in, in verse 13 here, God has sent his Holy Spirit. Uh, God has given to us of his Spirit that we might know. How do we do that? How, what's the evaluation that we make? Well, the Spirit leads us in the right ways to reflect his love and convicts us strongly when we fail. This is the evidence. It's not that we get it right 100% of the time. You'll never have any assurance in anything if that were the standard. The standard is that you care at all about reflecting the love uh, of God accurately and that you're brokenhearted when you fail in. God has given us of his spirit in order that we might be able to pursue loving like him in the first place and that we might be able to test the fruit of our hearts as we interact with those that he brings into our lives. Where we fail to love others, we really are failing to reflect God well. I I think it's really easy for us to talk about loving God. It's really easy for us to be self-deceived into saying to ourselves, well, I think I do a pretty good job at that. I I think I'm okay. I I really do. Of course I love God. Why would I say I don't love God? But herein is the test that John's command really brings us to, and that is, how are you doing with everyone else? How are you doing with those people who um, God has placed in your life who um, you really don't like very much? How, how are you doing with those people who could never return your affection? How are you doing with loving self-sacrificially to those who today or tomorrow or anytime future could offer anything to you in return? As a new Christian and um, in an early ministry assignment, I encountered a man who was Um, incredibly difficult. Uh, He was one of those guys who was always irritated, uh, always uh, always upset about something, always ready to point out ways that this particular church or um, this particular staff uh, or staff member or one particular intern uh, was really a big problem. And and I remember going to one of the pastors of this church and just kind of talking this through, talking this out and saying, you know, I thought the church was supposed to be loving. And I, I thought that um, the, that we were supposed to be patient with one another and love each other and be nice and all those things. This guy's as mean as a snake. I mean, if he's so unhappy, what's he still doing here? Right? I guess kind of like there's the door, right? If, you, if, you, if everything's so bad, why are you here? And the pastor listened quietly and finally said, have you ever asked God to help you love the way he loves? Of course I have. And I remember this, this pastor looked at me and said, Jesus loved his enemies. You can imagine my, my stunned silence. He, he had flipped the table on me. It wasn't about whether this guy loved me and whether this guy was loving and whether this guy was doing all the things he was supposed to do. It was, okay, here's a person that God has brought into your life who's difficult. Can you love him? 
If he hates you every day for the rest of your life, can you love him? I think that John has given us this text here to tell us that with God's power and new life in Christ, the answer to that is yes. Yes, I can. I'm not saying that's going to be easy, but it is nonetheless true. So it's very easy to say that we love God. It's pretty easy to talk like we love one another, but to actually give of self to one who is at enmity with you, well, that's the measuring stick, isn't it? Can you really love someone who hates you or who's indifferent to you? What about someone who can't or won't ever be able to give in return uh, for your love? If you're a believer, God has given to you his spirit that you may answer yes to that and that you may know by the conviction of your heart whether you're pursuing that kind of love or something else. Maybe today you could just dare to take a look at the relationships in your life. All of them. All of them. The good, the bad, the professional, family, otherwise. All of those relationships and and ask this question, am I loving from a motivation of giving of self and reflecting God's love or am I loving because it serves me well? Or do I love when it's easy but not when it's hard? One final note that we need to make before we conclude comes in verse 14. The Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That really brings us neatly back to John 3.16, doesn't it? The Savior of the world. There's a great deal of similarity between John 3.16 and 1 John 4, 14, there's an echo as well from John's opening line of this letter where he says, um, chapter 1, verse 1, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, it's an apostolic affirmation. John is saying uh, as he writes, listen, I'm, I'm one who I saw and I touched, I have experienced firsthand and in the flesh these truths. And this time around, he says here in verse 14, we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent the Son to be, or who is, the Savior of the world. And as we saw before with John's statement, God is love, there are many ways to interpret this. And we remember that some would like to say to this idea, God is love, that we started with, to the detriment of all his other attributes, They would say, God is love, and there's no need to discuss sin or judgment or hell or bloody sacrifices and all that. We can cling to God as love alone, and we'll stay nice and warm and fuzzy. But we'd be dead wrong. Similarly, there are those who would love to run away with John 3.16 and 1 John 4.14, saying, all are saved, God loves the world, and he sent a Savior for the whole world. But we already know that the rest of Scripture makes plain that he's the Savior of those who respond in faith to the gospel, not to those who have not heard the gospel or to those who have heard and responded in unbelief. So no, we can't rip these verses out of their context and say, don't worry, be happy, or eat, drink, and be merry, or all all dogs go to heaven. It just isn't so. So the question is not whether we're going to limit what Savior of the world means. The question is, What is the limitation? The world here is cosmos, which means all of creation and everything in it. Not just the earth, but every atom in the universe. And not just the material things within the creation, all of the powers and the systems and the spiritual entities within it as well. So it's the material and the immaterial, all of creation. 
and all of the competing forces that are vying for our allegiances and vying for supremacy, that's the world. That's cosmos. Well, did God really love all that? Well, certainly he does not love that in the sense that he gives approval to it. And let us remember our own standing within that system that we too were a part of all that was at enmity with him. But John tells us here in verse 14 that there is no way at all that anything in that cosmos, anything in that world, anything or anyone in that cosmic ball of wicked rebellion could ever be reconciled to a holy God. God had to do it. He was the only way. There's no other possibility. That doesn't mean that everyone in the cosmos will be saved, but that the well-meant offer of the gospel is extended to them. Who does it actually apply to? I think John gives us the answer in verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Who does it apply to? This is the one who abides in God and God in him. This is the one who is saved by the Savior of the world. The one who believes and confesses responding to the gospel. You know, last week as we began to think about John 3.16 and began this Advent series, we talked about the problem. That left to ourselves, we're perishing. And this week, this week we're saying that we see the power of salvation, that God loved the world and provided the only possible solution for sinners to be saved, for wrath to be assuaged, for right relationship with him to be restored. It's the power of salvation. That power comes in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is the savior for the cosmos. In John chapter 13, just after Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, he said to them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Are you able to do that? Are you able to obey that command? If you've never responded in faith and repentance to the gospel, then that really is not yet possible for you. But understand this, this is no um, exclusion meant for shaming. This is just simply a, uh, a distinction in the scripture. There are commands that are given for believers. And there are, there's no hope of getting them right apart from Christ. And so if that is you... If, if you would believe in him and, and follow after him, God so loved the world that he sent his son as a propitiation for you if you would respond in faith and repentance to him. Life in Christ and the love of God and the ability to love as he loved, it's all on the table for anyone who would respond to him. If you are a believer, I would ask this, how are you doing with the new commandment? How are you doing with loving others as Christ loved you, of loving in a self-sacrificing way, of loving, uh, reflecting God's love by giving of self at a cost when there's no repayment to you of any kind. I, I don't know what the Lord would put on your heart this morning, but I would offer both the gospel to those who have not yet come to Christ and the promise of God's shepherding and guiding and wisdom from the Holy Spirit if you have and are in need to respond to this command to love as God loved. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for truths about how you love. That this is more than something that you can do. It's more than something that you have. It's what you are. And Lord, I pray that you would do two things 
uh, this, this morning as we conclude our time in your word, that those who are here this morning who have not responded to your great love for the world, the selfless act of giving Christ, if they've not responded in trusting him and repenting of their sins, that today would be the day of salvation for them. That today would be the day that they would begin to fully experience your love and to love others in that way. And for believers this morning, I pray that you would equip us, Lord, that um, we would truly pursue this abiding in you and you abiding in us by reflecting your nature, reflecting self-sacrificing love. Not just when it's convenient, Lord. Not just when it's those who we agree with or those who are, we, find, um, uh, we find agreeable. Um, those who we like. But that even those who are difficult, even those who show hatred and contempt toward us, that we would respond with your love and that it would be a powerful witness of who you are and what you've done. So Lord, we open an invitation time now. I pray that you would, you would move in your church, your church body and uh, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would, uh, would come and work and we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. As the praise team or John comes to lead us in a time of responding in faith, I'll be at the front. There are needs on your heart. You come and um, we'll conclude in this way. Mm-hmm.